Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9 will be in verses 18 through 34 as we look at the bulk of the second half of this chapter this morning as we see Jesus on a mission of hope and healing to these communities. As we walk through this together, we'll consider this, that Jesus gives hope to hopeless people. Jesus gives hope to hopeless people. I'll begin reading in Matthew 9, verse 18. While Jesus was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. We'll stop right there for the moment. As we walk through this passage, we'll see that Matthew gives us four different miracles of healing today in which five different people are healed. In Matthew's gospel, each of these people is nameless, but both Mark and Luke tell us the name of this ruler, and he's kind of become famous for this story. His name is Jairus. He's a ruler in the synagogue. This first story is really a two-for-one. We've got this, this girl, and then we've got this lady, both of whom are sick. And in both cases, there are a lot of similarities in the story. In both, both cases, Jesus is dealing with a female, a little girl, and then a grown woman. We see the number 12 play a significant role in each story. The woman has been sick for 12 years, and the little girl is 12 years old. In both stories, it's a physical touch that leads to their healing, though there are other times where Jesus doesn't touch uh, the, the person who's sick. In both cases, one a grown woman and one a young girl, both of them are referred to as daughters. We also see kind of the remarkable role of humility as first a ruler and then a woman fall at Jesus' feet and beg for healing. And what we see as we walk through this particular story is that desperate faith sees. Both this ruler and this woman are desperate. I mean, Jesus has just been speaking kind of this weird story about the bridegroom, the wine, the wineskins, the old cloth. And these words aren't even out of his mouth before this, this ruler is running up to him. Jairus is a ruler of the synagogue that we see here. So he's, he's not a paid professional. We have rabbis, we have uh, teachers, there are scribes, and those people are kind of professional clergy. He's not like that. He's essentially a leading layman in the church. I don't know, a chairman of the deacons, if you will, who, who serves the synagogue. He serves as he has some kind of other profession, but this is a way that he serves uh, the synagogue. So he's a devout member of the community, and his role is to oversee the weekly function and the weekly worship in that synagogue. So he's pretty much in charge of everything that's non-teaching at this synagogue, from making sure the building is safe to making sure it's open, clean, ready for worship, down to making sure the specific elements of the service are ready. They didn't certainly have sound in that day or, or, uh, or, uh, or you know, audio, audio or visual kind of needs, but he would have been the guy to oversee that. So in saying he's a ruler, he's not a paid member of the synagogue, but really he's a volunteer there who oversees that. But, but in doing that, he's also a very significant member of this community. 
Well, when he comes before Jesus, he immediately falls down at his feet. He, he's just prostrate before him. Well, why is this? It's because he's in anguish, isn't he? His little girl, his 12-year-old daughter, has just died. Well, this, this leader of the synagogue falls at Jesus' feet, and Mark's gospel tells us that he literally is begging him many times. In other words, he, he's kind of hysterical. He falls, my daughter's just died, my daughter's just died, please help me, please help me, please help me, Jesus. It's, it's over and over again. It's a very humbling position that this, this man is. Well, if you think about how is it that we've seen people like him, prominent members of the Jewish religious community, respond to Jesus, none of them have been like this. None of them have been humble like this. None of them have been seeking Jesus' help. We've seen one person interested. Most of them have been very skeptical, even rejecting of Jesus before Jesus ever got there. So what is it that makes this ruler different? It's what he's experiencing, isn't it? I mean, all death is tragic. It's, it's hard to see anyone pass away. But, but the death of a child hits individuals and hits communities in ways that, that can never be repaired. I mean, perhaps some of us here have experienced this kind of a loss. I can remember at my dad's funeral observing my grandfather. My dad was 50 when he died. My grandfather, I think in his 70s at the time. And I remember him just crushed by grief. As this man who no doubt thought that he would precede his son into death sat there grieving on the second row. And I just remember observing how much it crushes a parent to lose a child, even an adult child. You can only imagine how, how this man feels. It turns this competent leader into a blubbering mess where he's literally hysterically begging at the feet of Jesus. His grief has made him desperate. Why is this? He's hopeless. Right now, can all of his law save him? No. Can his synagogue help him? His religion cannot meet this need. And he begs Jesus, please come help me. And look in verse 19 how Jesus responds. Jesus rose and followed him. Now think, Jesus is not by himself in this moment. The crowds are following him wherever he goes. He's no doubt surrounded by a large crowd of people. He'd be helping many needs, and yet in this moment he takes time for an individual. He walks past the crowd to help one person who needs his help. I mean, Jesus is the best kind of shepherd. He's the kind of person who has a hundred sheep, and one of them is hurting. And he goes, finds that lost sheep. He goes and looks for that one. He's the kind of shepherd who sees one person in need and helps that person. And so Jesus goes with Jairus to help his daughter. And as he's going to help this 12-year-old girl, we meet another woman in verse 20. A woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him. Mark tells us a little more about what happens here, and he says that she suffered much under many physicians. She had spent all that she had, all of her money to try to be healed, only to grow increasingly worse. And the language he uses is strong. Much from many physicians spending all she had received no help, but only got worse. We have a number of people in our church right now going through a various forms of treatment for cancer. People who go through cancer treatment will tell you that if the cancer doesn't get you, what will? The treatment. I mean, sometimes the treatment can be worse than the cure. And in this lady's case, it, this was true. She had this illness and she spent everything that she had. She's destitute now. She has nothing left because she's tried to be healed and she'd only gotten worse. We have a picture that draws a fate like the little girl's. The little girl is dead and the woman 
for all practical purposes, may as well be dead. Mark also uses a word for her disease that's a little bit different than what Matthew uses. He calls her disease, it's a word that can be used for disease, but it literally means flogging. In other words, in, in Acts chapter 22, when Paul is being tried, the tribune orders Paul to be brought into the barracks that he should be examined by flogging. That's the same word that, Mark's use, that Mark uses to describe her disease. In other words, it's not kind of your average everyday disease. It's a torment that is literally beating the life out of her over time. It's like a figurative whip that's been whipping her emotionally and physically for 12 years. Uh, this discharge of blood is literally a flow of blood. It's nonstop. It's not a scab on her arm that won't heal. It's a nonstop menstrual hemorrhage. It's gross. She had no doubt used rags, any treatment she could to try to stop this. And you can imagine by this time this woman reeks. She's not just experiencing kind of the, the physical symptoms that she's aware of. Everywhere she goes, everyone recognizes her first by her smell. Smells that are too graphic, really, for us to list here. Well, the law decreed that a woman on her period was unclean for a week after her period. There was this cleansing period. And then a woman who had experienced kind of something like this in a prolonged manner is unclean the entire time she endures the problem. So for 12 years, she's been unable to enter Jewish society. She's been unable to enter homes. She's been unable to worship with her family and friends. She's existed on the outskirts of society, and the people know that she's coming, and they flee her the moment they smell her. When they smell her, they stay as far away as possible, because if you know how Jewish culture works, not only is she unclean, but what? Everyone she touches becomes unclean. She's not allowed to be around people, and no doubt people recoil from her the minute they spy her coming. She's sent out from the community because she's too gross, and she makes anyone who comes into contact with her gross too. She's not just sick. She's disgusting to the people around her. So think about this. This woman reeks of bodily fluids. What's around Jesus? A crowd. So crowded that the other Gospels tell us that when she touches his garment, Jesus looks around trying to figure out who it is that touched him because there are so many people there. So the fact that she is there, she's no doubt fighting through the crowd. What is she also doing? She's spreading her uncleanness, her disgustingness to the people around her. She's not even supposed to be there. She's not allowed to be around anyone, let alone touch anyone. And yet she sees the very Son of God, fights through a crowd, reaches out, and she touches him. This is an incredibly bold move to make, particularly for a, wo a, a woman to make in a society where women would not be welcome among the leaders of that society. She reaches out and touches him. She's incredibly bold, might we say desperate. See, Jairus is desperate because his daughter is dead. This woman is desperate because she is as good as dead. By being there, she's breaking the law. And by touching Jesus, she threatens to make him impure and unclean too. Jesus at this moment, if he were like any other respectable ruler in the town, would rebuke her and send her away because of the threat she represented to everyone there. And yet the first words that come out of his mouth are mind-blowing. He calls her daughter. I mean, imagine that everyone you've seen for more than a decade has run at the side of you has perhaps covered their nose at the smell of you, has recoiled from you, and yet this person calls you daughter. Take heart, daughter. This woman's 
physical touch, when she reaches out and touches Jesus' garment, is symbolic of the faith in her heart, reaching out and taking hold of Jesus as her only hope. You see, her physical desperation leads to spiritual desperation. Desperate faith that there's only one person, one person who, in, in whom she can have any hope, one person who can help her, and that's Jesus. Well, if we're sitting here this morning, we all have some picture of God. I mean, some of us picture God very little. Some of us maybe question whether God is real or whether God exists. Some of us picture God as some sort of distant person. Maybe a judge kind of looking out sternly over us to to take us in hand and, and rebuke us. And yet those who come to God by faith in Jesus relate to God as father, daughter, not as judge. And how is it that, that good, good dads treat their children when they're hurting? I mean, good dads don't recoil from their little girl when she's hurting. Good, good dads don't, don't step away or, or recoil in, in, in disgust from, from their daughter when she's, when she's there and she, she's weeping and she's bleeding. They embrace them. They affirm them. They give them security. They value them and they lend them hope when there is no hope. They lend them a stable place when they're unstable, when when they're feeling insecure and and weepy, and and they don't know why dad's there to to help them and and comfort them. Friends, we do not follow a Jesus who who holds his children at arm's length. We don't don't follow a Savior who, when his children come to him, they're, they're desperate, they're needy, they're helpless, they don't know what to do, and they show up, and he's like, nah, I don't got time for this. We, we don't run to a Jesus who sort of judges us and looks at us kind of uh, sterilely and austerely from, from his bench. We run to a father, a God who we can abo- approach boldly and brashly like this woman desperately and ask him to help. And he will receive us as children, not as enemies, as friends, not acquaintances, as his family, not as people waiting to be judged by a judge. I mean, do you struggle at times with fear, guilt, and shame? How is it that people crushed under the burden of their sin, under the weight of guilt both real and imagined, guilt that is our fault and guilt perhaps foisted upon us by others, how do we deal with that? Like this woman, we must fight to get to Jesus because Jesus can help us. Jesus helps the helpless. He is hope for the hopeless. He will heal the one who is incurable, and he heals this woman. And brothers and sisters, if you find yourself here this morning desperate and feeling disgusted perhaps with yourself, Jesus is the Savior who will welcome anyone who comes to him. The difficulty with us is like this. We stand back and we look at ourselves and we're a little bit like this woman. I mean, is she disgusting? Yes, she is disgusting. I mean, if she walked in here this morning and sat in your row, you'd smell her. You'd be aware of her. Perhaps you'd even see the evidence of the fact that she cannot stop these fluids from seeping from her body. There's nothing she can do about it. When she'd leave, she would leave the residue of her filth behind her. She no doubt questions whether she has any right to be here, and in truth, she shouldn't be here. And yet she comes because he's the only one. And when we find ourselves in this situation, perhaps it's not literal, literal filth or physical filth like this. Perhaps it's some sense of spiritual or emotional or psychological shame that we cannot deal with. And what we try to do is we try to process it on our own. We, we try to kind of clean ourselves up to make ourselves worthy. You know, like we clean ourselves up to come to church, like we got to come to Jesus that way. But, but it actually works the opposite. We must come to Jesus as we are because he knows what we are. 
And, and the way this equation works is he's the one, he's, he's, he's got the ability to deal with our shame, with our torment, with our guilt in ways that we never can. You see, humans cannot offer this kind of hope. Don't try to cleanse your shame. Just admit that you have it and run to Jesus. He'll take care of it. He's a Savior who can. And he heals this woman. We forgot about the girl, didn't we? Well, Jesus arrives at the house in verse 23, and there are professional mourners there. Well, in first century Israel, even the poorest people would hire professional mourners. They were kind of the, the first century version of a funeral home. You couldn't do this yourself. You had to hire these people. Uh, in the second century, Rabbi Judah said, even the poorest person in Israel should hire at least two flute players and one wailing woman. So, I mean, if you were the poorest person in town, you got someone wailing outside your town. And that was kind of how, or outside your house. That was kind of how you knew that someone had died. Jesus heals this girl. Well, these people are experts, and they know what? I mean, they do this all the time, don't they? I mean, they travel around, they play their instruments, and they mourn because they know when someone is dead. And yet Jesus says in verse 24, go away, for the girl is not dead, but is sleeping. Well, if you're like this, you've seen this over and over again, you've experienced this, how are you going to respond? Who's the expert here? Not Jesus. And so they laugh at him. But Jesus knows the crowd is a distraction. He takes them and he sends them away, gets rid of all the distractions, and he enters this girl's room. It's an intimate moment that Jesus spends with this girl and her family. Jesus takes her by the hand, he heals her, and she gets up immediately. In fact, Mark tells us she gets up, she's like, hey, uh, is there any food? She's hungry. She's immediately healed. It's not a gradual recovery, it's a miraculous resurrection. The people respond in amazement. Verse 26, the report of this went throughout all that district. I mean, think about this picture we see of Jesus for hurting people. And the truth is that we're here this morning, even if we're the most capable person here or the, the toughest seeming or toughest looking person here, we all have places of hurt. We all have things somewhere inside us that if the person were to say the right word, ask the right question, places of tender hurt that could reduce us all at some level to an emotional mess, maybe even move us to tears. And parents that lose a child, they never completely heal. You can talk to someone at the verge of death themselves, 80, 90, and they remember losing that child. It's, not, it's, it's a hole that never is filled. Miscarriage, stillborn child, a young child that dies of a protracted illness, children taken suddenly and expectedly. How can people who experience tragedy like this process grief? And how do we encourage other people who are going through something like that that feels unaddressable? Well, I think one way is to look to the tenderness of, of Jesus here, isn't it? I mean, he takes this girl. There are times when he dazzles the crowd with his power. Everyone's hungry and he feeds 5,000 people. But in this story, he sends the crowd away. I think Jesus knows the hurt of these parents. He knows our grief. Isaiah 40 tells us he will tend his flock like a shepherd, gather the lambs in his arms, carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. You see, Jesus knows your hurt. Jesus knows your 
grief. Now, the people around you may not know, but Jesus knows. Jesus understands. Lean in to him. Now, you might be like I'm tempted to say, okay, that's, that's all well and good, but how does this story end? This girl is what? She's healed. She's raised. Jesus didn't heal my child. Jesus didn't heal the person I love, and you're right. That happens. People we love are gone. But this girl's 12. What happens to her when she's 32, 42, 82? I mean, she ain't here. She dies. I mean, this little girl will one day die again. She gets the privilege of dying twice. See, death comes to all people. This resurrection, it's not really the ultimate resurrection. It's just an appetizer, a picture of what is to come. You see, the great resurrection is Jesus. Jesus himself will one day rise from the dead. And his resurrection, not this little girl's resurrection, guarantees that everyone who knows God will also rise from the dead. It guarantees the resurrection of all of God's children. On this day, Jesus saves one child. And that points to the great resurrection of the Son of God, Jesus Christ which points to the great resurrection when God will raise all of God's children from the grave. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us this. It tells us that Christ is the first fruits. In other words, he's just the first one. We're all going to rise from the dead, and that it is coming. Everyone who belongs to Jesus will join him. So when we deal with grief and death, we don't deal with it as the final stage, a terminal journey. We deal it as one step in a process, the greater part of which is still coming. So we deal with grief, we deal with death, but looking forward to the great resurrection when God will resurrect all of his children. We don't sorrow as those who have no hope, but we hope in the final resurrection of the dead for ourselves and all of God's people. This little girl's resurrection is just a small picture of that. So we move from two females to two blind men in verses 27 through 31. I'll read those verses now. Verse 27, as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. Their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As Jesus leaves Jairus' house and he heads back home, there are two blind men walking along with him. And as they're coming, they are literally screaming. They're, not, they're crying out, but they're literally screaming, have mercy on us, son of David. This is no doubt quite a scene. You can imagine a crowd there, two men walking with Jesus and screaming at him, please help us. These men are also desperate. Well, this is the first time in Matthew that we see Jesus called the son of David. And in using this title, these men are demonstrating faith in Jesus. Do you remember the first words of Matthew's gospel? This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And what was Matthew proving there in those first couple chapters? He went through all these father, 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 father. Why? To prove that Jesus was David's son. Why? Because David's son would be the rightful king of Israel, the Messiah. Matthew is demonstrating this, and these men demonstrate faith that Jesus is the one who's the promised king who will deliver God's people. Like Jairus, like the bleeding woman, these men are desperate. So they follow Jesus into the house, and Jesus asks them a question. A question they probably already know the answer to, but he asks them, verse 28, do you believe that I'm able to do this? 
They say yes, and then he heals them. Matthew, again, is highlighting Jesus' authority. These men proclaim Jesus, the heir to the throne, David's son, and then Jesus heals them, verse 29, according to your faith, be it done to you. Jesus isn't saying your healing is as great as your faith is. Rather, he is saying because you have faith, I heal you according to my infinite power. There's an idea sometimes that when we ask God to heal and he doesn't heal, that he is answering prayers according to the amount of our faith. If we are healed, because we didn't believe, we didn't have enough faith. We don't know why God heals sometimes and sometimes does not heal. We don't know why, but one thing that we can see consistently in the life of Christ is that he performs miracles based on his power, not on the amount of faith in the person. I mean, if you remember, just a few chapters ago, his disciples are in a boat, and they're crossing the sea, and Jesus calms the storm because of their faith? No. He's like, you have no faith, and he calms the storm. Or Mark chapter 9, a father comes at Jesus. He's got a little demon-possessed boy, and he pleads with Jesus to heal him. And Jesus asks him, do you believe? He's like, Lord, I believe. I want to believe, but I, but I don't believe. God, help my unbelief. And Jesus heals the boy. Not because the man's faith is great, but because Jesus' power is great. It's why Jesus says elsewhere that faith, like what, can move a mountain? Like a mountain? Nah, like a mustard seed. The tiniest seed that they knew. Because it's, it's not about the amount of faith, but about the power of the person answering our prayers. That person has the power to move the mountain, not us. And so we ask him, and he can do it. So when you run to Jesus, even when you have little faith, weak faith, you can be confident that he always has the power to heal, the power to intervene. And will have the wisdom to do what's best. And sometimes we just pray, God, I want to believe my unbelief. This paragraph closes in a rather interesting way in verses 30 and 31. Jesus sternly warns them, see that no one knows about it, but they went away and spread his fame through all that district. This is sometimes called the messianic secret. Mark does this a good bit more than Matthew, and so Mark's gospel is kind of famous for this, but we see Jesus kind of interacting. He heals someone. He does something amazing, and rather than saying, go make sure everyone knows about it, he says, make sure no one knows about it. I mean, isn't this interesting? Uh, Matthew didn't say this, but, but, but Mark does as well. He, he raises this little girl from the dead, and he's like, shh, don't, don't tell anyone about this. Like, can, can you imagine? I mean, you, you get this. You ha- this happens at work, school, whatever. You know, you, you get a little bit of news. You, you want to tell someone about it. I mean, imagine that you see a girl dead and, like, rise from the dead, or you see some blind men, and, and they're wandering around screaming, and then they're healed right in front of your eyes, and there's a crowd there, and Jesus tells the crowd, don't tell anyone about this. It's, it's, like, you know, it's like having a confidential meeting with thousands of people. That just, just, just doesn't work. I mean, the people are going to spread the secret. And yet, Jesus says this. And we think, we don't know his exact motives, but we think it's in part because uh, the time isn't ready for kind of things to, to, to blow the lid off of who he is. So, he's in the north, kind of away from the center of Jewish authority in Jerusalem. And they're kind of letting him do his thing there in the wilderness. We know uh, there are times when they kind of send spies up to check him out, scribes, Pharisees from Jerusalem, and they go see who he is. But the time is not yet for him to be crucified. He's still kind of accomplishing his mission. And so in the interest of being able to move about freely, he's saying, like, don't spread the word yet. Now, there is going to come a time when he's going to say, tell everyone who I am. I mean, that's our job, right? Tell everyone who Jesus is. But that day isn't yet. 
In fact, if they tell everyone, that will at some level impede his mission. And so he sternly warns them, please don't tell anyone. In fact, this phrase, sternly warn them, is used only five times in the New Testament. And, and it's used every time with great emotion. Jesus is very concerned that this not happen. So this brings us to our final story. It's a rather short story in verses 32 to 34. We'll read that now. Verse 32. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. At least this man can't scream at him, right? And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. The crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Uh, This word for mute can mean mute, deaf, or deaf mute. Whatever, this guy can't speak. Well, we don't know always why we experience diseases that we experience, but we know in this case that the cause of this man's muteness is a demon. Jesus takes care of the demon. Now this mute man can speak. Crowds are amazed. Verse 33, never was anything like this seen in Israel. Well, this is the climax. It's kind of the strongest statement of what people have been saying. The crowds are astonished at his teaching. The crowds are astonished that people are healed. And now they're more amazed at this than anything that has ever been done in Israel. I mean, this is the place where the Red Sea parted, where Elijah called down fire from heaven on the prophets of Baal, where God spoke from the mountain. I mean, there have been a lot of crazy things that have happened in Israel, and yet they say this is the most amazing thing. It's a remarkable statement. These people see Jesus operate this way, and yet there's also a group there who can't see or won't see Jesus for who he is. By this time, Jesus has cast out demons. He has raised a dead girl, calmed a storm, made the blind people see. And Isaiah 35 predicted that the Son of God would do this. Isaiah 35, 4, behold, your God will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf, deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. The Pharisees are seeing these prophecies, which they know, happen right in front of their eyes. This is not a problem with evidence. This is not a problem with this failing to happen. But the Pharisees say in verse 34, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. The Pharisees aren't responding to the evidence, not because there's not enough evidence, but because of their presuppositions. They cannot believe who Jesus is, so they will not believe who he is. Jesus threatens their influence, so he must be bad. So rather than submit to Jesus, worship Jesus for who he is, they accuse him of being demon-possessed. See, there are many reasons that people don't enter the kingdom of heaven, but they all boil down to two basic reasons. One is that we cannot see ourselves for the sinners that we are. We, We can't admit who we are before God, but the second is that we can't see Jesus for who he is. And the Pharisees have both problems. They don't want to admit that they're bad, and they don't want to admit that they need Jesus. You see, cynics cannot see because they will not see. Think about everything that we've seen demons do, what demons are like. We've seen them drive people crazy, so crazy they can rip chains apart. We've seen them terrorize a community so that people are afraid to leave their town. We've seen them in this chapter take a man and destroy his ability to speak. Demons are always tearing, destroying, wrecking. And now think about what Jesus does. What is Jesus doing? He's restoring. He's giving life where there is no life. He's taking a broken, bleeding woman and, and, and healing her. who She reeks of menstrual fluids. 
He takes people who can't see and he gives them sight. And now this man who couldn't speak can speak. Everything Jesus does is restoring. It's fixing. It's, it's, it's taking what is broken and it's mending and it's giving life where there is none. It's the opposite of what everything that we've seen demons do. And if the Pharisees have been there watching this, they have seen this with their own eyes, but they cannot see because they will not see. And God has given us more than enough revelation to know who we are and to see Jesus for who he is. We are sinners by birth and by action who need grace. Jesus is a sinless Savior who came to rescue sinners. This morning, if you cannot see Jesus for who he is, that not, is not a problem with our Savior. It is a problem with our refusal to see him for who he is. Will you turn from your sin, even a cynical refusal to see Jesus for who he is, and trust him today? Like this woman, Jesus is your only hope. Like this little girl, Jesus is your only hope. Like these blind men, Jesus can take the blind and give them sight, but he can only do it if you admit your need of him. Will you turn from your sin and trust him? Well, let's take a moment now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God, and then I'll close this time in prayer. God, we thank you that Jesus is a Savior who takes time for the hurting. God, I pray for those here who are hurting and hopeless, that they would find their hope in him. Lord, I also think of those here who would be cynical, questioning whether Jesus is who he is. God, I pray that you would open the eyes of their spiritual blindness and that they would see it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus truly is our only hope, but he also is enough. He has paid the price for all of our sins, and if you're here this morning and you would like to know more about him, we'd love to talk with you or pray with you about that. I'll be available here in just a moment as well throughout the week. If there's any way that we could serve you as it relates to becoming a part of this church, following the Lord in baptism, we'd love to talk with you about any of these matters. Let's stand to our feet. We'll sing, Jesus Paid It All. Savior say, thy strength indeed is small, child of weakness watch and pray, find in me thine all in all, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, sin had left a crimson stain. Lord, now indeed I find Thy power and Thine alone Can change the leper spots And melt the heart of stone Jesus paid it all All to Him I owe Sin had left
God that that's true. Uh, if you're here and you're visiting with us today, we'd love to have you join us in one of our uh, classes, Sunday school classes. Now we have a number available, a group that'll be meeting here looking at anxiety and depression, hope for those moments. If you'd like to join us, you're more than welcome to stay for that. Now, brothers and sisters, as you leave, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that by the power of his spirit, you may have hope. Amen. Have a wonderful day.